Last week we communed together at the Lord's table, and in preparation for that ordinance, we considered Paul's instructions to the Corinthian church. First letter, 10th chapter, and I'd like to come back to that passage in just a few moments, but today we're privileged to hear several believers profess their faith in Jesus, and we are gathered to observe as they follow Christ in the waters of baptism to witness this event. And I'd like to couple then the message today to last week's emphasis as we strive to faithfully steward the ordinances that Christ has entrusted to His church. We're familiar with these ordinances. We should be familiar with them. But I'd encourage us to come today with a sense of stewardship and purpose as we labor together to please Christ in the way that we respond to all that He's given us. And specifically then today as we faithfully steward the ordinances of the church, I'd like to draw attention and our thoughts to consider the relationship between the Lord's Supper and baptism. What relationship is there? As we think of the Lord's Supper last week and come to baptism today, it's just a good opportunity for us to consider these ordinances and how we relate to them. And as I do this today, I want to uh, be an encouragement to those who know not Christ. I think the gospel can be sounded in these words as we think about what Christ has done. I'd also like to be laboring here and encouraging those who are just coming to understand the Lord's Supper and baptism. I think throughout the rest of our lives we'll be coming to recognize its depths and its meaning Uh, But I want to encourage those, maybe our young people particularly, who are coming just to put together what these things are, what these ordinances are. And then thirdly, again, is to to repeat a bit, but to, to stimulate our resolve to remain faithful to Christ as we steward the ordinances that He has entrusted to us. Let me say on that third goal for us as a church... There's just no two ways around it. There are good Bible-believing people that differ fairly dramatically in the application of these ordinances. So as we talk about that, we want to do so graciously, but also just to recognize there's no other way than to address these matters of difference. We cannot be faithful to the ordinances without understanding where there are differences and how we need to respond. So maybe a a bit of a different uh, sermon than is typical for us, but I want to just uh, guide our ways at the beginning here to think along these lines. And I'm going to structure things according to two questions as we think of this relationship between the two. And asked on a test, how would you respond in an essay? What is the relationship between baptism and the Lord's Supper? How do you understand that relationship? Let me ask first of all, should we welcome unbelievers to commune with us at the Lord's table? How do we decide on that? What conclusion do we draw? Should we, as a church, welcome unbelievers to commune with us at the Lord's table? Let me state my conclusion at the beginning of this, and I think many would agree, some certainly will not. But I think that the nature 
and the purpose of the Lord's table do not permit us to commune here with the unregenerate. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we considered it more carefully last week. But I want to just remind us of this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You make your way there into verse 16 where Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, speaks to them in these words. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? How do we understand that phrase, a participation in the blood of Christ? Jesus provides the table as a place where we commune together in the good news that Jesus shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We commune in that truth. We fellowship in that truth. The table is a time to look back and to rejoice in Christ's redemptive sacrifice. To eat the Lord's Supper is, as we find here in 1 Corinthians 10.16, a sort of participation in the grand story of Jesus' saving grace, put on full display at Calvary and at the table remembered. Not only brought to mind, but in a sense participated in the bread. The bread is a participation in the body of Christ. How do we interpret that? How do we understand that participation in the body of Christ? I think as a child, I always thought of it in terms of the the bread is broken. And so we are talking about the broken body of Jesus. I think a better understanding is that this is an affirmation that we form the new redeemed community of faith which Jesus purchased with His blood. We are the body of Christ. And so as we come to the table, there is a participation in the new people that Christ has created by His death and resurrection. We come as that new community. We come as that new people. We participate together in that way. And I think this interpretation is right in light of verse 17, which follows along those united themes, that solidarity of God's people. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Partaking of the one bread, we participate in the body of Christ, this new redeemed community, celebrating with it. So we come back to the question, are we free then to invite unbelievers to participate with the blood-bought body of Christ. Verse 21, they provide yet more answer to that point. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now what does he mean, you can't? Obviously they could. Some of them were. And he's seeking to correct that. As they're going to sacrifices at the pagan temples and they're eating the Lord's table with the church, they actually were doing both, but you can't do that. This mixed worship, this mixed fellowship, you're in the world or you're not. You're going to commune in participation with the body of Christ in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
or to commune with the world. Gordon Fee says nicely in comment on this passage, their singular existence as the people of God, singular. There's nothing like it in the world. Their singular existence as the people of God bound together to their Lord through the benefits of the cross and experienced regularly at His table makes all other such meals idolatry. So Paul exhorts the Corinthians then to realize that they cannot fellowship at the table of false gods. They must choose where their allegiance lies. In his second epistle to them, he comes back to this very theme, saying it this way, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness... Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Notice that word portion. What participation is there? What shared fellowship is there between the believer and the unbeliever? There certainly is communication. There certainly is in some sense of the term friendship and connection. But what fellowship is there? What shared identity can there be? between a believer and an unbeliever. One says that Christ is Lord. One says, I'm not yielding to that. So if fellowship with unbelievers at their temples is wrong, how could fellowship with unbelievers at the Lord's table be justified? How can we eat at both tables? How can we fellowship in both places and ways? As we move back to 1 Corinthians and to chapter 11, if you make your way there, we find explicit instruction concerning the Lord's Supper. And this may be a good place for us to remember to whom Paul is speaking. How does he address this Corinthian church, these believers? It's troubles that they had. He starts the epistle this way. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That is set apart from the world as holy ones. Called to be saints. Called to be those who live holy lives together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So they are in Christ Jesus. They passed into that circle of union with Christ. And they are members of the global fellowship of Christ's redeemed people. This is who he's talking to as he comes, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to verse 23. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Paul reminds the Corinthians. So by its very nature, do you agree with me? 
Are we here together on this point? By its very nature, the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the new covenant ratified by the death of Jesus as the sacrificial Lamb of God. The Lord's Supper is a meal by which Jesus' new covenant people proclaim the gospel until he returns. They together, looking back, identifying with Jesus, say, we are observing this meal for the glory of his name. This is a proclamation then. It is a fellowship unbelievers cannot truly join. They have not entered through faith into new covenant blessings. They do not find their identity in Jesus' death and resurrection. They are not proclaiming the return of Christ in this way and in this kind of fellowship. Oddly, the lost would be celebrating with us that we are no longer among them. As we come to the table, in a sense, that's what we say. I'm not of this world. I am, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, among the sanctified, among the saints, among the holy ones that God has chosen out of His world and placed in His body. We would be celebrating with unbelievers that we're not them. And they would be celebrating what? Exactly. We've been rescued from the ranks of the lost. Now, the only way that it works for the unbeliever to be celebrating with us that we're not among them at the same table is what? It's if they're in some level of ignorance. They really don't know what's going on in this table, at this meal. If we keep them in the dark, they can take the elements... And they can gain whatever they imagine in their mind that they're gaining. But when we look at the purpose of the supper, the reason that Christ has given it, the purpose and its nature, there's no way that they can be drawn to this table with us and celebrate here. So should unbelievers be invited to commune with us at the Lord's table? I think the simple answer, and Paul in some measure, is answering it when he says in 2 Corinthians, what fellowship has light with darkness? What portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? Now let me hasten to say, and in our, in our environment, how important it is that these are not hateful words by which Paul means to cut off unbelievers from the life of the church. We cannot interpret them that way. He is talking about communion, about fellowship, about unity and a shared worship of Christ as Lord and Savior. And if there's any question how Paul thought about people outside of Christ, remember what he gave himself to. How many times he barely escaped death. And how on the last time he did not escape death. Out of love for the lost and the need to proclaim the gospel to them. So keeping them from the table does not reflect the heart of a man who's callous, who's seeking to hold others away. He gave his life to draw them to the table, in a sense. And so we would want to stress as a church to you that we're not gathered before the Lord's table today that if ever you are with us and you have not come to follow Christ as your Savior, we welcome you here to our presence 
to think about Jesus' death and resurrection and what it means. The fact that Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin. That He died in the sinner's place to bear the wrath of God and thus to pay that cost for us. That He rose from the dead in victory over death and Satan. We want you to consider that. We welcome you to consider that truth. And we invite people here to the assembly that they might consider this truth of Christ. We invite to come to Jesus, but to fellowship with Christ as Lord bars us from fellowshipping with those who reject Christ as Lord. And maybe on some level, even those who have not come to perceive that they are in fact rejecting Christ as Lord. We can harm the gospel by pretending it doesn't matter. By pretending that the gospel does not divide. That our Savior never did. You come to follow me, pick up a cross. It will be the case, he said to his followers, that some of you, your enemies will be those of your own family. Jesus never downplayed the divide. But with love and grace, ultimately with his life, he held out his arms of welcome to all who are separated from him. But how can those without God's Spirit commune with us as we exalt in the accomplishment of Christ's death in our behalf? How is that possible? Only by keeping the lost in dark ignorance. Not letting them know what the table really is. It's the only way that it works. Perhaps accepting a momentary conversion on the spot. That's the only way it works. Now, it may seem really for many of us unimaginable that a gospel-believing church would welcome the unregenerate to the table, but it seems unimaginable to us only because that's our practice as a church. It's not unimaginable whatsoever. And we need to be aware of that or we are not being equipped to protect the table as we should. As we strive to protect and steward the table as a church for God's glory, let me highlight just two ways that gospel-preaching churches commonly invite the unregenerate to the Lord's table. Well, I don't have it here. Sorry. Let me just say it. First, when a pastor does not specify who is invited to the Lord's Supper, he encourages unbelievers to participate. When a pastor does not specify who is invited to the Lord's Supper, he encourages unbelievers to participate. If you attend a community meeting... It's going to be a little bit of a long meeting. You don't really know what's coming, but all of a sudden in the middle of the meeting they break out the little sandwiches and they pass the tray all the way around the room and you're sitting in a circle around this big table. Isn't it, doesn't it feel weird to kind of pass the tray on and not take one of the sandwiches? I mean, you might have a reason not to, like you might die if you eat it or something like that, but... but Generally, you're just going to feel like you know everybody's taking a little sandwich and passing it on, and I'm going to do the same thing. 
It's very natural for us to do that. This is what happens and what we, I'm encouraging us as a church, need to resist. Let me give an illustration of where this happens with the Lord's table. A church, gospel-preaching church, holds a Christmas Eve service. They advertise the Christmas Eve service, and many in the community come to the church. It's filled to the gills with people. New people, visitors, people who don't go to church but once or twice a year, but there's this really special Christmas Eve service at this church, and we're invited to come, and there's all kinds of people there. And in that service, the Lord's Supper is served with no call as to who's invited there. Those in the seats receive the elements and it's just like being at that meeting with the little sandwiches what are you going to do you just take one that's what everybody's doing everybody's eating and drinking here and that's what i do because i'm sitting here i'm part of the part of this gathering we need to be cautious there now it goes further than just not addressing it i have a pastor friend who's seeking to lead a young man to christ and that man his report is recently came and receive the Lord's Supper. He was rejoicing in this one who is clearly no interest in following Christ, has said that he has no interest in following Jesus in baptism, but has taken the Lord's Supper, and this is seen as a win. But the question is that we must ask in this world, is the Lord's Supper intended by Jesus to be a stepping stone to saving faith? Is that how Christ perceives the supper? Is that how he's given it to us? That it would be a stepping stone to saving faith? I visited a church not long ago, a pastor I greatly respect, encouraged unbelievers to take the elements if perchance they may in doing so come to saving faith in Christ. So this is a conversion meal, is how it is being presented. But again, the question we must raise, is this a stepping stone to saving faith? Now there's no question that unbelievers eat the elements of the Lord's Supper with us from time to time. But the key is that we invite, we do not invite them to do so. We seek to gently discourage it. And our goal is always to be gracious. Our goal is not to offend. Our goal is to rather sound the gospel faithfully, to say that at the fellowship of this meal is invited those who have come to saving faith in Jesus crucified and risen. There's no gray zone then. And nor is the meal seen then as a stepping stone to faith, as a move toward God. It may be that in an individual situation, but that is not the intention of the meal. A second way that gospel-preaching churches bring unbelievers to the table is when they baptize infants. When they do so, it adopts a culture in which the unregenerate routinely participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, that's not always the case as those who are infant baptized come to Christ as Savior. But often it is a case, and at least at the beginning in some churches, it is the case where Bible-believing, born-again churches baptizing infants bring to the table those who have never been converted. 
how do they get there? Uh, infants obviously do not believe, uh, or these infant baptizing churches do not believe that baptism saves the baby. There are churches that believe that the water itself is effective to the point of securing that child, removing them from original sin and the like. We're not talking about that whole strain of Christendom. We're talking here about those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ but baptize infants. They do not believe that saves the child. They do, not, they, they do believe, however, that infant baptism under the new covenant, after Jesus, replaces circumcision under the old covenant, prior to Jesus. And they believe that baptism unites a baby then with the covenant people of God as circumcision once united babies with Israel. Baptism, they contend then, spreads the seeds of future faith and repentance in the child by the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. So in this baptism, somehow the Spirit uses the baptism to put the seeds of faith and future repentance in the child. What happens in this approach is that faith and baptism are separated. Baptism now, faith later we trust. That separation is a significant issue. And more on that in a moment, how the New Testament does not separate faith and baptism. But for now, what we must recognize is that gospel preaching infant baptizing churches willingly welcome unregenerate church members to commune at the Lord's table. Since they've been baptized, since they are then part of the covenant people, they are always welcome to the table barring some sort of excommunication through gross negligence and sin. But perhaps most of these churches strive to address this problem, faith, baptism separated, unregenerate at the table. How do they deal with it? One way they deal with that problem is confirmation. At a certain point in a child's age, they confirm that the faith that was placed in me at baptism has now come to life and I belong to Christ. In their confirmation, they make this clear as they go through their classes and affirm their faith before a church. This confirmation approach has noble intentions, but it restricts the baptized from the Lord's Supper. That is, until confirmation. So they're baptized, but until they're confirmed, no Lord's Supper. And it also struggles mightily to relate to those who pass through classes because they know the answers, but who remain yet unconverted. Other churches, they see that problem. How can you biblically say a person can be baptized, but not invited to the Lord's Supper? They don't see that in the Bible. We don't either. How do they solve it? They give the Lord's Supper to infants. Infant is baptized, part of the covenant people, and so even an infant held in arms is receiving the Lord's Supper in their view. Well, however practiced, infant baptizing churches all believe that the church of Jesus Christ is comprised of a mixed company of regenerate, 
and unregenerate peoples. They are under the covenant of grace, but it is the church is the believers and unbelievers together under that covenant. And so they must invite. They willingly invite, if not haltingly at times, the unregenerate to the table. I've mentioned this before, but I attended seminary here in the most recent days um, and met a young pastor there who I don't know if I had it written on my face or what or why he came and complained to me, but we were just at a break and he brought up the heaviness of his heart that he knew that he was giving the Lord's Supper to unregenerate people. And this tension of what the supper is and people who know not Christ were not baptized by the Spirit, had not been converted, he was administering the Lord's table to them. And it bothered his conscience terribly, but it was his communion, it was his church. He didn't know what to do. Well, we, if we come to this conviction, if you believe that only believers should commune at the Lord's table, then we must ask a second question. And that is, how are we to determine that a person is a true believer and thus welcome to Christ to commune at his table? Should unbelievers be brought to the table if you say, no, they should be restricted in some sense? Then how are we to determine that a person is a true believer and thus welcome to Christ to commune at at his table? How do we get to that point? There are two primary options. And I encourage you to follow me here. It's, it's crucial. There's two primary options. The first and common approach is to assert that each individual must determine his or her own fitness. In the case of young children, parents may help determine that a child is a genuine believer and qualified to commune at the table. But this approach grants the church no essential role in determining one's fitness to the table. The determination of fitness rests with the individual, at least the individual family. Now others can obviously add their voices in the church, but their voices are really not necessary. Fundamentally, it's a private determination. So here's the picture. A pastor stands behind the Lord's table and is overseeing the um, meal and says, we are here to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. If you have come to saving faith in Jesus, we invite you to this meal. And individuals silently determine in their own mind, have I come to saving faith in Christ, and they are welcome to participate in the meal. They may be baptized, they may not be baptized. That's not an issue. This is the approach that many would take. There's only one other basic approach to determine one's fitness to commune at the table, and I'd like to commend it to us as we practice it as a church. But how do we determine that one is born again and qualified to commune at the table? I believe the New Testament answer to that question is baptism. Believer's baptism. The subjective, individualized determination of fitness for the Lord's Supper is common, but the New Testament points to a more objective, communal 
determination. That is, the church makes that decision on some level. This communal vetting is facilitated by the ordinance of baptism. Jesus calls the redeemed to identify with Him in baptism, and the church bears public testimony that a believer's submission to Christ's call has been realized in the waters of baptism. Then once baptized, the church together, in a sense, then calls the individual to the table as a communing believer in Christ. Now, baptism cannot flawlessly prove that a person has been baptized by the Spirit, but baptism is a rite uniquely calibrated to provide a decisive public recognition by the body of Christ that a person gives every indication of being a genuine follower of Jesus. It's not just the individual in the quiet of their mind, but it's the church together saying, we affirm through baptism that this one is to be invited to the meal. So baptism, and our baptism day is a little bit like a wedding ceremony. Baptism slows everything down so that brains and memories can fasten on the moment. It provides a process by which the church may investigate one's relationship with Christ. And it provides an opportunity for the gathered church to hear the believer's profession of faith. It's not something that happened in the private of a home somewhere once in the past that the individual and maybe the family knows about, but it is something the entire church has come to recognize through baptism. And baptism then permits the church to observe the sincerity of that profession in the believer's willing submission to the rite of baptism. Let's turn to Acts chapter 10 just for a few moments and pin all of these thoughts where the well that we're drawing from are the examples of baptism in the New Testament. But as we think of Peter approaching Cornelius, the Gentile, who is seeking God through the Old Testament Scriptures, but Peter comes and proclaims to him Jesus Christ crucified and risen. The end of chapter 10 of Acts, we read these words. Verse 44, Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. We see the proclamation of the Word and the Spirit of God's washing, cleansing, filling. And the believers, verse 45, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. That's connecting with chapter 2. Exactly what happened to us as Israelites is happening to these Gentiles right here as they hear the Word of God proclaimed. Notice what they say, verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We see the close connection between faith and baptism. It's a connection that is consistent in the New Testament. Acts 2, Pentecost, repent, believe, and be baptized. 
Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch believes the word of God and says, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip weighs in. Now, you don't have a church there because you don't have a church, period, in Ethiopia or on the way down there in Gaza. It's transitional, certainly. But Acts 10, Cornelius, the spirit baptism comes from the hearing of the word in line with Acts 2. Acts 19, John's disciples believe and are baptized in response. Everything hinges on Acts 2. Baptism identifies the believers with the church who then participate in the Lord's Supper. This is the pattern we consistently see in the New Testament. The key being in Acts 10 that the Spirit is poured out upon them, verse 45, so that, verse 47, Peter and the assembled crowd recognize the appropriateness of baptizing these who have been converted. We together, it's not a church, of course, it's transitional. Church isn't here in this spot at Caesarea Maritima at this point. But we together as the witnesses of Christ, see the evidences of salvation in these individuals, we command them to be baptized. Commanding them, why? Because Christ has commanded those who respond in faith to salvation to follow Him in the waters of baptism. So verse 48, Peter's command is based on what the believers could clearly see in the life of Cornelius. Undoubtedly, all kinds of fireworks in this particular situation, but the principle and the pattern is the same, and we want to put that into practice as a church. There is response in faith to the gospel, evidences that are clear to the entire assembly, and formalized in the waters of baptism. So the church that welcomes the unbaptized to the Lord's Supper turns what the New Testament conceives primarily as an objective and communal determination into a subjective, individualized determination. What the church should witness, one's baptism, and what the church should then do, welcome that one to commune at the table, is taken out of the church's hands and is changed into a private matter for consideration. This approach makes good sense as we're steeped in Western individualism, but it does not really square with New Testament practice. What is the relationship then between baptism and the Lord's Supper? This is what I think we need to carry with us, those three goals, that I'm, uh, three different types of people that I mentioned at the beginning. Baptism is the initiating rite of the church that unites a member formally to the body of Christ. It's not to each individual body once in your lifetime. But then the Lord's Supper is the continuing rite of the church in which the saved and baptized fellowship together as the body of Christ. So baptism is the bold, formal announcement. I forever belong to Christ. I have been united by faith to Jesus. Here I stand. And the church says, Amen. May it be. At the Lord's Supper then, we commune with Christ and with His people in the Gospel. I think there are so many advantages here and time limits are chasing of them, but just to consider. I think the child who professes Christ in childhood 
is never baptized and then abandons the faith in adulthood, I think there's benefit to recognize in that adult's mind the church never invited me to the table. That's a good thing. It's a hard thing. It's heart-wrenching. But it's gospel proclamation in and of itself. Or second, the lost or unbaptized believers, the lost or unbaptized believers who are restricted from the table, this is hard for all of us. We take no joy in restricting an unbaptized believer from the table. But they too, and even the unbeliever, can meditate on Christ crucified and risen as observers. There's nothing to stop that. We don't ask them to leave. We encourage them to stay. But it's an important reminder for the lost to trust the gospel. And it's an important reminder for the unbaptized believer to follow Jesus in baptism, that this matters. But back to the matter at hand. Let us slow down today. Let us joyfully receive these several candidates who have come to identify with Christ in the waters of baptism. And may we, as a congregation, not let this moment go. But may we, as a congregation, receive them formally into fellowship of Christ's church as covenanting members and according to Christ's holy ordinance. We recognize there are great differences of opinion. We recognize the offense that these thoughts sometimes have. But may we say always, our point, our goal, is to honor Christ, to adorn the gospel, and to draw in those who follow Christ as Savior and then are baptized in recognition of that truth. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this time, we pray on behalf of our candidates that you would give them clarity of thought, freedom of speech. I pray that you would bless them uniquely in this time. For those who know not Christ as Savior among us, please make clear to them our love for them, your love for them in the gospel. For those coming to understand these ideas, may you draw them to see the significance of baptism in the Lord's Supper as followers of Christ. And may some step forward here in days to come to say, count me in. I want to identify with Jesus in this way. For those of us who know these truths and steward this church, may we have resolve to love those who disagree, but to be faithful to Christ. Bless now this time together, we pray in His name. Amen.